it became impossible in public discourse in Japan, at least, to really uh, reflect on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and certainly to express any kind of critique uh, of the American decision to drop the bombs or of American censorship of uh, the bombs uh, during uh, the occupation. So what's remarkable is that one of the most public ways in which the Japanese began to address this painful history was through the medium of film, and particularly through a science fiction movie uh, about a dinosaur that is irradiated by American H-bomb testing, rises out of the sea, and destroys Tokyo. Chapman University's Wilkinson College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences and Heritage Future present Engaging the World, leading the conversation on environmental justice. This series explores environmental racism and climate injustice. Since the Industrial Revolution, we have been choking our waters with waste, poisoning our soil, and contaminating the air we breathe, all in the name of progress. And the most vulnerable communities, with the least amount of representation and power, suffer through the worst effects. Environmental justice brings awareness to these marginalized communities, their activism, and the path forward fighting to ensure that every voice is heard, every challenge is addressed, and every community has a seat at the table for a greener future. In this episode, we connect with East Asian historian Dr. William Tsutsui to discuss his favorite topic, Godzilla, and how this beast has become a, quote, cinematic conscience for viewers in Japan and globally in the aftermath of World War II. Here is Dr. Tsutsui. Godzilla was introduced to you at a young age, this, this character. Did this introduction of Japanese culture through this iconic monster, is that what led your educational path? You know, it's an it's a interesting question because I feel like uh, I have lived my whole life with Godzilla in one way uh, or another from the time I saw that first movie when I was seven or eight years old growing up. Uh, in Central Texas uh, to today uh, when I find myself uh, being asked to speak on Godzilla and give quotes to the media on Godzilla more than I could imagine possible. Uh, this big cinematic lizard uh, has been a part uh, of, my, uh, of my existence, uh, of uh, my identity as a Japanese American, uh, and of my professional life uh, as a historian trying to educate people uh, about uh, Japan. And it's sort of a chicken and the egg. So I don't know if uh, Godzilla uh, took me down that path uh, or if I was headed down that path uh, and I realized along the way that Godzilla uh, uh, was a great way uh, of doing what I wanted to do. Uh, but nonetheless, it's entirely uh, tied up uh, together. I'm one of those people who at almost every uh, important juncture in my life felt I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life and was 180 degrees wrong uh, uh, in you know, what I expected. So when I went off to college, uh, this was back in Reagan's America, uh, I uh, really wanted to be uh, a businessman. 
So I sort of imagined myself working uh, on Wall Street, maybe in Goldman Sachs or one of the big uh, investment banks uh, of the day, uh, pocketing a huge paycheck, wearing uh, beautiful suits, working in the skyscraper. Uh, and I remember taking my first economics class uh, as an undergraduate and thinking, wow, uh, I expected this to really be about people and I expected it to be more interesting. Instead, this is just math. Uh, and so uh, that fantasy of going into business didn't last uh, too long. Uh, and uh, I ultimately drifted to history uh, because history is about those human stories uh, that I really uh, wanted uh, to relate to. Uh, and it also resonates with movies. Movies, in essence, are stories. Uh, and so for me, uh, that just uh, hit home. After four years and having a degree in what I like to tell people uh, sometimes seems like uh, uh, the least practical major in the world, East Asian studies, uh, I uh, uh, began to think, boy, how am I going to feed myself uh, when this college gig is done? Uh, and uh, my roommates and I uh, watched LA Law every week. And I said, heck, why don't I become a lawyer? Looks like a good life, fast cars, uh, downtown LA. Half my roommates were becoming lawyers as well. So I said, wow, we can go to law school together. Six weeks, I hated law school. I decided I'm going back to what I love, okay? So it's stories, history, Japan, and rolled into that uh, was uh, these monster movies uh, that had been part of my life for as long uh, as I could uh, remember. So what I tell a lot of young people is, you know, it's become hokey, you know, this idea of following your passion. Uh, and yet, that's exactly what I ended up learning from these experiences of trying really hard to be practical and pre-professional and failing miserably, that my spirit was someplace else uh, and I followed that. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, it led me to a place uh, where uh, I get paid to talk about Godzilla movies uh, and uh, share my passion with others. <laughs> So it was an early age that you first uh, fell in love with this character, love or admiration or, or awe. And at that young age, were you aware of like the socio connections to the trauma that this story and this character was based on? I'll tell you, I don't think anyone in America was aware of this uh, uh, history to the Godzilla series and really the cultural and historical context in which the first film was made in the 1950s until the start of the 21st century. The original Japanese film from 1954 was not available in broad release in the United States until 2004. Uh, so most Americans had not actually seen it. They had seen a very he heavily edited version of that original. The original was called Gojira uh, uh, or Godzilla. Uh, and the American version was called Godzilla King of the Monsters, came out in 1956. And while uh, uh, it contained raw material from the original film edited up for American consumption, it was a very different movie and didn't really give us insight uh, into the uh, political nature of the film or the trauma the Japanese people were feeling at the time that it was made, less than a decade after Hiroshima and Nagasaki and in the middle uh, of the Cold War and the nuclear uh, arms race. Uh, so like most people growing up, when I looked at a Godzilla movie, I saw a big lizard walking through a toy city making things explode. Uh, and that was fun. It still, I think, is what draws a lot of people. Uh, 
uh, to those films. Uh, and yet it gives an entirely new level of comprehension when you realize, wow, you know, there's actually something I can learn uh, from this. Uh, this is not just uh, a fantasy, uh, but is really channeling uh, much deeper feelings in Japanese society at the time. 1954, November of 1954, where we are nine years away from these horrific incidents that as Americans, we can't even fathom. And you talk about in your, your lecture how Japan, that it was taboo or banned for them to talk about uh, the, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that they were not able to uh, explore that trauma in art and film. Um, and yet this, this giant lizard movie is made. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is, um, so after uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, 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 and Japan's defeat in 1945, uh, the American military, uh, working with the Allied forces, occupied Japan for a span of seven years. Uh, so Japan was under American occupation from 1945 to 1952. And at the beginning of that occupation, um, uh, the Americans were willing to have the Japanese talk about the atomic bombings. Uh, because they really wanted the Japanese to understand how thoroughly they'd been defeated, how strong American science was, uh, and uh, uh, really uh, how horrifying the destruction of those two cities uh, had been. Uh, but pretty soon the Americans realized that if most Japanese people really realized uh, how horrifying these new weapons were, it, it might turn them against American occupation uh, rather than impress them with American power. And so at that point, the Americans decided, we're just going to censor all discussion of the atomic bombings in Japan. And so essentially, Japanese newspapers, Japanese authors, Japanese films, Japanese music could not address uh, that uh, uh, really traumatic experience in 1945 directly. When it came to 1952, and the Americans went home and the Japanese took over, you would think that all of a sudden that meant the lid was lifted off the pot and all of a sudden the Japanese could address this history. But really, it had been so repressed by that point. And Japanese society is quite straight-laced in any case and doesn't really want to talk about, people don't want to talk publicly about controversial issues, um, uh, that it became impossible in public discourse in Japan, at least, to really uh, reflect on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and certainly to express any kind of critique uh, of the American decision uh, to drop the bombs or of American censorship uh, of uh, the bombs uh, during uh, the occupation. So what's remarkable is that one of the uh, most public ways in which the Japanese began to address this painful history was through the medium of film, and particularly through a science fiction movie uh, about a dinosaur that is irradiated by American H-bomb testing, rises out of the sea, and destroys uh, Tokyo. It's amazing uh, that that narrative uh, uh, became uh, uh, so meaningful uh, to people who were trying to work out a lot of complex uh, feelings, uh, uh, a lot of ongoing anxiety uh, about uh, uh, the atomic bombs and the Cold War uh, that was taking place uh, at that uh, very moment uh, and could have a cathartic effect for society. 
I know that there have been studies here in the States about the PTSD we as citizens experienced after 9-11, right? Even, even those of us that were nowhere near New York or Pennsylvania or D.C., but just experiencing that, witnessing that, whether you're watching it on TV, were there studies or have there been studies about the post-traumatic stress of a nation losing tens of thousands of people instantly? Like, I never in history, you know, other than maybe natural disasters, but not to that level where tens of thousands of people are gone in an instant. And then hundreds of thousands more over time. That 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 mourning, that that rehabilitation, that psychological rehabilitation has to be intense. You know, the impacts on Japanese society were, needless to say, incredibly profound uh, uh, on so many different levels of that wartime experience, and especially uh, of the two atomic attacks. To many commentators, they really reshaped Japanese society and reshaped the national psychology uh, after uh, the war in meaningful ways. So most people would say one thing they did was uh, promote a strong pacifist movement in Japan, that as a result uh, of uh, uh, the defeat uh, uh, and the atomic bombings, Japanese people uh, essentially said, we don't want war anymore. You know, and this was codified in the Japanese Constitution, written in 1947, with a lot of American uh, influence, but which captured the spirit of the Japanese people, which said, you know, we don't really want uh, military uh, force uh, in our country. We don't want an army or navy or an air force. Uh, uh, we want to be for the uh, cause of peace. And I think for many Japanese at the time and since, this has been a very sincere desire uh, to get away uh, from these sort of big power politics uh, uh, and uh, uh, empire and war uh, and so forth. Needless to say, though, almost as soon as that constitution was written, the American government said, well, you know, actually, we are fighting a Cold War. We sort of need the Japanese to, you know, build up some military capacity uh, again. So Japan today has self-defense forces. But clearly, one reaction to uh, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and defeat was this recoil from uh, the military as a way of solving international problems, uh, which I think is a very positive uh, that happened. But there are many other ways uh, in which this had a deep effect on Japanese uh, society. Uh, one, and this is common uh, with the end of wars everywhere, there developed something of a crisis of masculinity uh, in Japan, uh, because of course, uh, men were very closely associated with the war effort from Japan's leadership uh, during the 1940s, which was not surprisingly entirely male, uh, to the uh, members of the Japanese military uh, who were portrayed in uh, patriotic uh, uh, ways and uh, propaganda and so forth, and did the fighting uh, during the war, uh, and then were defeated uh, and came home uh, as the vanquished uh, rather than as uh, the victors. And so this has impacts on family life. This has impacts on the media. And I think we can see it uh, in uh, the Godzilla films uh, as well, where Godzilla uh, is this interesting figure. You know, is Godzilla a hero? Is he a villain? Is he a bit of both? Uh, and I think that's something a lot of Japanese people had to deal with in the wake of the war, uh, that they uh, survived really uh, a, a profound traumatic 
experience. And so on some level, uh, they felt like uh, they had endured in a positive way. And yet by being part of this war effort, uh, they had done some things uh, that they had come to regret. Uh, and so uh, they were very uh, uh, ambivalent when they looked backwards. It's interesting thinking about Godzilla, whether it's the original or any of the other iterations, but also just like the this uh, kaiju giant monster. It's it's one of the only things that could come in and decimate a city. I mean, like a nuclear bomb could. But in a lot of these movies, you're not focusing on the death. You focus on the destruction. You see the destruction, but the death toll is not something that is heavy-handed. Even in the most recent, the uh, uh, Godzilla versus King Kong, this entire city is destroyed, and and I'm watching and thinking, like, man, hundreds of thousands of people must be dying, and we're not talking about it at all because we care more about the monsters at this point. You know, uh, Susan Sontag wrote in a famous. Uh, piece about the imagination of disaster uh, in popular cinema. Uh, and, you know, she was actually probably the first person to take Japanese movie monsters seriously uh, back in the 1960s. Uh, and she said, you know, monster pictures are important uh, as an artifact uh, of the Cold War age, really uh, in two ways. And they work on two levels. One is they distract us from the horror all around us on a daily basis. Because when we're thinking about about the idea of nuclear holocaust potentially raining down from the, from the sky at any moment. Boy, it's sort of fun to watch a big lizard running around on a movie screen and for an hour and a half just forget about the existential threat uh, that superpower politics uh, plays uh, in our lives. So the movies distract us. The second way, though, is she says, says the, the movies essentially anesthetize us to the horror uh, that is all around us. By seeing these scenes of mass destruction, by seeing giant monsters walk through and destroy cities, in some ways, we are preparing ourselves for what might be the reality of mass uh, thermonuclear catastrophe somewhere down the road. And that's both of these are sort of dangerous. Right, because both in both of these ways, they're getting us to internalize uh, uh, sort of that mass destruction could happen. And we've been sitting with that knowledge since 1945 that, that there's this fear that will always be present. You know, I, I I grew up in the 80s, and it was everywhere, whether it was a Superman movie or you know Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd and Spies Like Us. That, that at any moment, the bombs will drop and everything will be wiped out. Um, do you think it, it desensitized them to a point? You know, when, when the attack happened uh, on the Twin Towers in 9-11, I know here on the West Coast, we were prepared for the worst and expecting, oh, this is it, you know, this is when... Uh, you know, all, all of the, the silos open up and all the lights uh, on the map are lit and you're watching little, you know, digital bombs. Like, I I was in my early 20s at the time and fairly naive, but I thought we're about to witness the end or mass catastrophe. Yeah, yeah. 
What I think is really interesting is the way uh, in which monster movies actually have something of an educational function or even a training function. So let me tell you a story. So uh, on March 11th, 2011, uh, I happened to be in Tokyo, uh, and I was traveling with a group of Japanese Americans, uh, uh, and we were on a bus uh, in the early afternoon. We just had our lunch, uh, and we were headed to a meeting with a Japanese business uh, group at a big hotel uh, in a skyscraper uh, in Tokyo. And uh, the bus pulls up uh, out in front of the hotel, it stops, uh, and just at that moment, it begins to shake. And I think for all of us, we thought, oh, the bus is malfunctioning. But then the shaking gets stronger and it keeps going. And it honestly seems like it's going forever. Uh, and so uh, uh, the big, the great Tohoku earthquake was happening uh, while I was sitting uh, on that bus. But looking outside, all the skyscrapers around us were swaying uh, as the earth shook. And after a minute from all those buildings, Hordes of Japanese people dressed in, you know, suits and ties uh, and formal clothing, skirts and heels, came running out uh, of the buildings in fear of what uh, was happening. Uh, and as soon as the shaking stopped, the guy on the bus next to me turned and he knew about my passion for the Godzilla movies. And he said, Bill, didn't that remind you of a Godzilla movie? And of course, now we know it was so totally inappropriate, you know, with the tsunami uh, uh, at that point, even beginning to bear down on the coast with what would happen at the Fukushima power plant uh, and so forth. You know, in retrospect, it was just in terrible taste. And yet the reality was, yes, it did remind me of a Godzilla movie. The city looking like it was going to collapse, people running uh, in fear. And at that moment, I began to realize, wow. The Japanese people are prepared for this. They have seen this moment a thousand times on TV, in movie theaters, in comic books. Uh, and that came home to me that evening after the earthquake struck. Uh, uh, Tokyo, uh, as you may remember, uh, essentially shut down after the earthquake. The trains in Japan are set that when there's a big earthquake, they just shut down uh, because uh, every inch of track has to be checked uh, to make sure it's safe, all the signaling uh, and so forth. So public transit was not running. Uh, uh, because uh, it was during the business day, there were all these workers in the city who had no way of getting home for the night. Uh, uh, a lot of spouses started then to drive into Tokyo to pick up uh, their wives or husbands, which meant the streets were just gridlock. You could not move anywhere in Tokyo for 12 hours uh, after uh, that earthquake. And what was amazing to me, as a number of observers noted at the time, was how dignified and disciplined the Japanese people were after this you know, really unthinkable uh, natural disaster. Uh, 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 outside every payphone and every ATM machine, people were lined up, you know, in these very orderly, very Japanese lines. At restaurants, I witnessed it with my own eyes, somebody coming out and saying, we don't have enough food uh, to let everybody have what they want, but I'm gonna tell you what, we'll take everyone in line and we'll divide what we have that many ways so everyone can have something. And then what amazed me the most, in a city that was in traffic gridlock for half a day, I only heard people blow their horns three times. Wow. 
Can you imagine what New York would sound like after a natural disaster? You know, it was incredible. And, you know, people said, oh, that's Japanese culture. That uh, meant that people were so uh, kind towards each other at that moment. Other people said, oh, you know, the Japanese state has got them so policed and so brainwashed uh, that they have to behave that way. And I thought to myself, you know, actually, those might have an impact. But it's also watching all these monster movies over the years meant the Japanese people were prepared. They were not so surprised. And they had a model for how to behave in the midst of a crisis that the whole world could stand to learn something from. In your lecture, you said that Godzilla is, I'm paraphrasing you here, functions as the cinematic conscience for viewers in Japan and globally. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how this this beast has done that throughout the decades following its original in 1954. Yeah, so that original 1954 movie, of course, was a very, very political movie. Uh, it essentially sent the message uh, that nuclear testing, proliferation of nuclear weapons is going to end up destroying this world. Uh, and Godzilla was really uh, this uh, representation uh, of this dark future that awaited mankind if we could not manage to discipline ourselves uh, uh, and to turn our back uh, on a force that was too big for us uh, to control. And I think really that movie did that masterfully, that it made us realize that, wow, you know, uh, we don't know what can happen. Uh, to this radiation. And maybe Mother Nature uh, knows better than we do. Uh, maybe our comeuppance is coming uh, for going too far uh, with science, uh, going too far with uh, nuclear weaponry and nuclear uh, power. Maybe we should think about it. The same thing uh, uh, characterizes a number of movies uh, in uh, the series. You know, people, uh, uh, when they think about the Godzilla movies, tend to remember those titles from the 60s and 70s, sort of the goofy Godzilla uh, in the very bright Technicolor, uh, where Godzilla is battling Mothra, a giant moth, or King Ghidorah, a three-headed dragon uh, monster. And you can tell it's people in rubber suits uh, wrestling with each other uh, on a soundstage. Uh, uh, they don't think that those films, too, uh, uh, addressed significant issues in Japanese and world society, but they did. Uh, perhaps one of the most famous ones is the, is the uh, way in which the films uh, talked about the pollution crisis in Japan and environmental concerns, which became acute in the 1970s. Japan was the world's most polluted place in the early 1970s, sort of like what we think of China uh, today, uh, you know, uh, perpetually hazy uh, from the smog, the waters uh, uh, poisoned uh, and devoid of life uh, because of industrialization. Uh, and the Godzilla movies address those in a wonderful film called Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, which hypothesizes that all of the polluted slime at the bottom of Tokyo Bay uh, at some point becomes so toxic that it takes form as a giant monster uh, which fights uh, Godzilla. And, you know, it sounds a little bit silly when I describe it uh, like this, but it, like that 1954 movie, is remarkably effective, uh, I think, in making audiences step back and say, yeah, we're doing some stupid things uh, in this world. Maybe we need to think about uh, that uh, a little bit deeper. You'd also talked about... Um 
I'm going to paraphrase you again. You say Godzilla gives a name, face, and form to fears that are often abstract and invisible, like radiation and viruses. Uh, and Godzilla domesticates, controls, overcomes, and therefore disempowers those things that threaten us. And we're in the, still in the middle of this pandemic. And this, what you say here, makes so much sense because how can we be afraid of something that we can't see? And, it, and it's one of the, the problems with the disinformation and misinformation that is going around is, we, you know, it, it, if we don't see it, how do we know it's real? If there isn't a giant monster destroying the city, how do we know that, that this tiny thing is killing this many people? You know, uh, I, I think it's a really, really great point uh, uh, that you raised. You know, modern society is characterized by anxiety. It goes with modern life, uh, right? That we are constantly afraid of something uh, we don't know about. Science is like this kind of Pandora's box. It opens up all these wonderful possibilities for society in doing things we've never done before. And yet it also raises all these questions uh, about forces that we can't uh, control. Uh, and Godzilla tapped into that profoundly, uh, I think. You know, uh, we were aware after uh, uh, August of 1945 just how powerful nuclear energy could be. And yet, thank goodness, most people around the world had never witnessed uh, a nuclear attack. And so how do you make sense of that uh, uh, if you can't see this object of your uh, anxieties? Uh, and so one of the most powerful things about cinema is it can bring shape and form uh, to those things um, that are uh, amorphous uh, or invisible. Uh, and Godzilla did that with genius, uh, I believe. Uh, and uh, in the process, uh, allowed people uh, to feel their greatest anxiety. So sort of have this cathartic sense of, gosh, i am got all this tension built up. There's a monster walking through the city. How horrible is that? And yet then when the monster is finally controlled and defeated, uh, when uh, the world is saved, as it were, at the end of the films, people could breathe a sigh of relief and say, gosh, maybe it will be okay uh, in the end. And that's profoundly valuable, uh, I think, uh, uh, in terms of dealing with uncertainty in a world that uh, uh, is getting more uncertain by the day. Uh, and that's been true, I think, for the past 70, uh, 70 years. One of the other things I think is really uh, interesting is the way uh, in which there's an element of nostalgia uh, in the Godzilla movies uh, for a period in which people could come together and fight a common foe. Um, you know, I see it in this country as well with some of the nostalgia uh, for the World War II period, which I think most people would probably say was the last uh, consensus good war uh, in American history where we were all fighting uh, enemies that we recognized uh, were identifiably evil, whether the Nazis uh, or the imperialists uh, in Japan. We did a good thing uh, for the world uh, in that war. Uh, uh, but in Japan, as in the United States, uh, there haven't been a lot of easy answers since 1945. Things are complicated. Politics is complicated. People have opinions, even about things that one shouldn't think would necessarily be uh, that controversial. And consequently, people have a yearning 
for a situation where there's a clear bad guy and a clear good guy. I think we see that in the Marvel Universe films uh, today. We all want to be able to identify with a hero. We all want to know who's wearing the black hat uh, and we should dislike, and we want to see the good guy uh, win uh, in the end. Uh, and Godzilla gave people that uh, in post-war Japan. You know, I think one of the uh, most valuable things uh, about the Godzilla series is finding meaning in places where you least expect there to be meaning. I think we've all come a long way in recognizing uh, that popular culture can teach us something. I remember when I started uh, showing Godzilla movies in my classes, that's over 20 years ago that I first used it in my undergraduate lecture classes. My colleagues thought I was crazy. Uh, my colleagues thought I was dumbing down uh, my teaching for students. I was pandering uh, somehow to them. Them. And I invited them, come to class, watch the movie and listen to the discussion. And you see if you think it's pandering. None of them ever did. But they just had this built in stereotype that, of course, popular culture had to be lightweight and harebrained, uh, especially science fiction on uh, some level. We've come a long way in recognizing uh, what we can learn from popular movies, from comic books, uh, from animation. Uh, but I think uh, there is still so much more uh, that we can do in that regard. So I just want to encourage people, if you have a passion, if you have something uh, that you think is maybe not that uh, important, keep thinking about it. Keep thinking about the ways uh, it relates to some of the uh, real existential issues uh, of our day. And I think you'll be surprised that even passions uh, uh, that seem most personal uh, and most irrelevant to the headlines of the times can teach us a lot uh, about where we're at and what we need uh, as people and as a society. If you would like to continue this conversation, Visit BillTutui.com to learn more, or Chapman.edu slash Wilkinson to hear his full lecture. For more socially conscious content, visit us at publicpodcasting.org, or follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you podcast. <laughs>